Just thank you for this day. We thank you for this opportunity to come before you and study your word. We ask that you lead and guide us as we, as we look at this and help us to see what you'd want us to see from this all in your son's precious name. Amen. Amen. Matthew chapter 2. <clears throat> now when Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea in the days of Herod the king, behold, there came wise men from the east to Jerusalem, saying, Where is he that is born king of the Jews? For we have seen his star in the east, and we are come to worship him. When Herod the king heard these things, he was troubled, and all Jerusalem with him. And when he had gathered the chief, all the chief priests and scribes of the people together, he demanded of them where Christ should be born. And they said unto him, In Bethlehem of Judea, for it is written by the prophet, And you, Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, are, are not the least of the princes of Judah, for all of you shall come the governor that shall, that shall rule my people Israel. Then Herod, when he had heard, privately called the wise men, inquired of them diligently what time the star appeared. And he sent them to Bethlehem and said, Go and search diligently for the young child, and when you have found him, bring word to me again, that I may come and worship him. And when they had heard the king, they departed, and lo, the star which they saw in the east went before them, till it came and stood where, over where the young child was. When, the, when they saw the star, they rejoiced with exceeding great joy. So we're going to stop there. Uh, we're looking at the birth of Jesus. Uh, actually, not the birth, but the coming of the Magi. And it says that when he was born in, in Bethlehem of Judah, in the days of Herod the king, this is very important for us to be able to time when Jesus was born because Herod died at 1 BC. And so we know that he was the latest possible date that Jesus could have been born would be 1 BC. And we, and we know that it's about two years before that because he's going to go after the, all the children two years and younger. So he, Jesus was probably born sometime around 3 or 5 BC. And that also matches up with what Luke says. 3 to 5 B.C. fits in with what Luke tells us. We're not going to read today. but So Jesus was born sometime around probably close to 3 B.C. but And might be as early or as late as 5 B.C. And <clears throat> Herod is king over Jerusalem at this time. Now Herod is not a Jew, so he's not rightfully supposed to be king. He is a he is married to a Jewish woman. He understands Jewish mentality as well as any Gentile can at that particular time. And he was appointed by Rome, so he wasn't really liked by many, by any of the Jews for that matter. But, and if they were real zealots, they were, angry. they were upset because he was not of the seed of David and he was ruling. And this was a big issue in, in Jerusalem. Not only did you have Pilate trying to be the Roman governor over there and having so much trouble, you've got Herod who is having a lot of trouble. And all through this area, you've got these Roman rulers that people are fighting against and plenty of rebellions against them. So Herod is sitting there and these wise men come to Jerusalem. Now, we don't, we're not told much about these wise men. We know they came from the east, which makes us believe that they were from the Median Persian Empire. We believe that they were the same group called the Kingmakers in, in uh, Babylon and Media Persia. 
if they did not approve of the next ruler, they had the power basically to stop them from being the next king. And their power was through prophecies and, and that type of stuff. They didn't have an army. They didn't, but if they didn't come on your side, you didn't have the wise men on your side to, to advise, to counsel. So the father, when he was looking at which one of his sons would be king, would take their counsel very much to heart. And of course, these guys being kingmakers made sure that they recommended kings that they could control. We're looking at these guys, and, and we've covered that in, you covered it in Sunday school, but there were not just three wise men, all right? We, we, they usually come up with three wise men because they give three gifts to, to Jesus, but most likely it was probably a very large entourage of these wise men because this is a big event. The birth of the king of heaven is and they knew this and part of the reason we believe they knew this is because if this is the group from Persia the Medo-Persian Empire Daniel had been placed in charge of them during that period of Nebuchadnezzar's rule and his son's rule so he would have had influence they would have, and they would have been the type of people wanting to know you know what oh you've got these prophecies of a great king that's going to rule the world tell us about him so there was they would have been holding on to these prophecies and so it's believed that they got this information from Daniel when he was, was put over in charge of them. And then they see this star and they see the, the, whatever this star is. And I, I agree with what Amy taught, that it was some kind of supernatural light. It was probably an angel, especially when it led from Jerusalem to Bethlehem, because no star in the sky is going to lead you 17 miles to a new, to a new location. That's just too specific. They might have followed a, some kind of grouping of stars to get from where they started to Jerusalem, but you also have to understand that they knew that they were going to Jerusalem. If what we think is true and Daniel taught them, they knew that they were going to be going to uh, Israel and, and Jerusalem would have been the logical place to go look for a king. And so they are going to the logical place to go to the king, the palace. That's where you expect to find a king. You don't expect to find the king somewhere else. And so they knock on the door of Herod. And it is believed that they came with a huge entourage. There were many of them, most likely. They would have had their, their uh, guard. They would have had a guard because they were coming with great wealth. And, of course, these guys are... Not the laborers, they, they are the thinkers and everything, so they're going to come with a whole bunch of servants. They're not going to set up their tents. They're not going to cook their meals. They're not going to do, you know, do all of these things. So it could have been upwards of 100 to 200 people that came from the east and shows up at King Herod's gate. Yes, yeah, and that's what I was saying. They're the ones that Daniel was put in charge of when he was in Babylon. So we believe that that's where they got. So they go to where it makes very good sense to go find a king. If there's a newborn king, you expect to find him <laughs> as a prince in the palace. And Herod, I love what this says, and they ask, where is he that is born of the king of the Jews? For we have seen a star, and we've come to worship him. And in verse 3, and Herod the king, when Herod the king heard these things, he was troubled. All right? And, and I laid the foundation of why is he troubled? The Jews don't like him. <laughs> He's barely holding on to his kingdom. 
Have you ever heard the, 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 the statement, if mama ain't happy, nobody's happy? Why? Because she can make the rest of the family miserable. If Herod's not happy, all of Jerusalem is not happy because he's likely to lop off heads. He's likely to just make strange commands. So when he's unhappy, Jerusalem is like, okay, what's going to happen? Herod killed most of his sons because he was afraid they were going to try to take power from him. He's paranoid. And these wise men coming in with a huge entourage from out of the country, which means he can't just say, you're not, you know, I'm not going to accept you because these guys are obviously important people when they come in. Can we assume then that that supernatural light led him first to Herod's door? I think it led them to Israel in general. And they, and they started just as we do so many times. I think I know the answer, so I go do what I think is the right answer rather than following the star. Right. Oh, this star is leading us to Jerusalem. We have the prophecy of the great king coming in Jerusalem. We're going to go where obviously a king is going to be born. I think that's what they did because Jerusalem and, and Bethlehem are only about 17 miles apart. So as they're following, they're coming to the great city, the palace is there, and I think they took their eyes off the star and said, well, we're right here in Jerusalem, we're going to go to the palace, that's where a king is going to be born. That's what I believe they did. I think they took their eyes off the star, and we do that so, so many times to take our eyes off God and say, well, I think this is what God wants me to do instead of keeping in prayer and and keeping on target, and I think that's what they did. They go, okay, you know, the star's leading us to Israel. Oh, it's leading us to Jerusalem. Into Jerusalem they go, right, he's not, he's not even a Jew, so he's not even, he's not an heir. And this is why, as I said at the very beginning, he was very, you know, he's got people rebelling against him. All these zealots are rebelling against him. He's got uh, what we today would call terrorists coming against him. Uh, they were making the roads unsafe. They were stealing the taxes, they were killing as many Roman guards, you know, Romans as they could get, get to. Sometimes they would go full-fledged open warfare. So Herod is in a really tight spot, and all of a sudden he's being told there's a king of the Jews coming, and he's, already, he's probably aware of the, the prophecies of a Messiah, because he's going to know the history of the Maccabees put a very, almost very successful rebellion against Rome for a period of time. He knows of them, and there's other groups that are coming up that are rebelling against Rome all the time in Israel because they're waiting for their Messiah. So he's aware, and now he's got kings coming from the east saying, uh, we know the prophecy of the king of the, of the Jews. We've been following his star. Where is he? He's, you know, we're at the castle. This is where he should be. Great history books about a, a battle of the Jews against the Rome, Romans. This is why Herod is very nervous because he's always worrying about losing his kingship anyway. And all of a sudden, these wise men, and I think he knew who they were. They had no influence over uh, Rome or, or Jerusalem. But he's looking at them and he goes, I think he knows that these are the kingmakers of Persia. He's a politician. He's going to know the, the different thing, who's who. And even in the other countries, he's going to know who's who and, and who he has to be careful of when they come in. So all of a sudden, these guys... Very important people are coming in saying, we're here to worship the king, and, and he's going to know these are the kingmakers. Who they pick as king usually becomes king. Even though they have no sway here, he's going to have 
they're good at picking good leaders. So he's got good reason to worry about this newborn, this newborn's child. And so verse 4, it says, When he had gathered all the chief priests and the scribes of all the people together, he demanded of them where Christ should be born. And they said unto them, In Bethlehem of Judea, for thus it is written by the prophet, And you, Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, are not the least among the princes of Judah, for out of you shall come a governor, and he shall rule my people. And this verse comes from Micah. I just want to read it in Micah real quick. Uh, chapter 2. And in Micah chapter... Um, 5 verse 2 but you Bethlehem Ephrah though you be little among the thousands of Judah yet all of the out of you shall come forth unto me that is to be ruler of Israel whose goings forth have been told from old from everlasting now remember that verse doesn't sound exactly like what they quoted now remember what I said on our very first week that we met for, my, uh, for Matthew. His quotes will come from the Septuagint. And the Septuagint is the Greek version of the Old Testament. Why are they coming out of that? Because most of them spoke Greek more than they spoke Hebrew. And Matthew is one of those. He's a very educated man. He was a tax collector. He was used to dealing with Rome. He was used to dealing in business. And if you did business, in the Roman Empire, you spoke Greek. That was the language that all the contracts were, would be done in, and that was the language you could do international work with, and he's working with an international group called the Romans. So he would have understood Greek, and he would have made his quotes from that. So when we look at these and we look back at the verses that they're quoting, there'll be some differences in them. I'm just bringing this out because a lot of times people go, well, that's not what, the, that's not what it says. Well, you're translating from the wrong, <laughs> wrong version when you look at that. That is a good question. They could have, but they may not have understood it completely because Micah was written before the, the fall and the exile. So if they had a version of the, a copy of the Bible, which may or may not have happened, because you want to remember in our day, everybody has Bibles. And most Christians have four or five Bibles, and mo even most non-Christians have two or three Bibles in their home. But this is only a phenomenon since the Gutenberg printing press. Okay, before Gutenberg, you, if you had a Bible, you were very wealthy because it took a lot of money to pay somebody to make a handwritten copy that took two years to write. So most, and even in the early times of the Reformation, most pastors did not have a Bible. It just was too much money to, to have a Bible because it just it wasn't where you put your, put your funds. You were lucky if your church had a Bible because the Catholics did not have Bibles in their churches. The priest would be sent letters, this is what you're preaching on on this Sunday, and everybody preached the same thing, and it came from Rome. And they did not have Bibles in most Catholic churches before before the Reformation. They were not. You did not have many of them. You, the priest had them in the, in the tabernacle. 
they would make them available to various teachers, but it was at the tabernacle and the temple where the scriptures were kept. Now, the kings were told to write out their own copy of the law, the first five books of the Bible. As far as we can tell, few, if any, ever followed that command to write out their own copy of the scriptures uh, because there just never, there never was during the evil times. They would be lucky and find, oh, we found the Bible. He obviously had a copy because it says in Daniel that he was reading the book of Jeremiah and reading the book of Isaiah. But you've got to remember he was of the princely line. So if there were Bibles available in that line in, at that time, he would be one that would have a chance to have one. But uh, you read about Josiah. Joseph, Josiah, when he's eight years old, has him clearing out the temple and, and they found a copy of the word of God and there was great excitement because... Obviously, nobody had been reading it. They'd been idol worshiping for two generations before that. Then when they read it, he tore his garments because of how evil things were in, in there. Hezekiah did the same thing. He cleaned out the temple, and they found the word of God. So even when we're talking about this, even in Jesus' time, there weren't a lot of copies of the Old Testament running around. And when they did copy over the, the Bible or the, the Old Testament, they would write it out very carefully. Another scribe would check to make sure there were no errors. And then when they finally got done, they destroyed the old copy and just kept the new copy. In our day, we would say, we need to pass this out and let others read it, especially back then. But even to this day, there's a very big sense of how holy the scriptures are. And they really don't want people touching and handling God's word. When you go, if you ever go to a synagogue, they make a great big ceremony out of getting the Torah. The Torah will be in a locked cabinet in the front of the synagogue. They make a big deal out of unlocking it. The chosen men who are ones that get to lead that day and the reader take the hold of the Torah and they parade it around the, the synagogue and people are literally... It was impressive yet scary to me when I saw it because it's like they're worshiping this scroll and it's still a scroll, at least in the ones that I went to, it's still a scroll that they walked around and people are reaching out and, and praising and it's covered with a cover. They set it out on a bench. They, take, they make a ceremony of undoing the cover. I don't remember if they put gloves on or not, but they very carefully, very carefully unroll it to where it's at and then they have this little silver pointer and they run it, well, they run it this way because they're left to right to left. And they never touch the pages. They never touch any of it as they're reading it. It's very fascinating. It was heartbreaking to me. It was fascinating on the side of seeing how high and lifted up the scriptures were. But at the same time, it was heartbreaking to me because they had turned it into an idol. All of this is just to show us that these scriptures are not real well known to everybody. If you were studying in the tabernacle, you were following a rabbi, you may or may not have known him, depending on, on the rabbi you were following. We have this idea that the Jews are this nice, solid block with everybody believing the same thing, and that is not true. Even today, it's not true, and it definitely wasn't true in Jesus' day. You had different rabbis who taught different things, that emphasized different things, who sometimes contradicted one another, and we think about how our 
Christian church is all divided up into denominations and, and different teachers that say sometimes diametrically opposed viewpoints. So it was never a really concrete, this is all that we believe. Now, there were times when there was only one, one or two major speakers speaking, like in Ezra's day or in Hezekiah or Josiah's day when they found it, that there would have been only one or two people speaking at the time for it. But even to this day, people follow certain rabbis, and what, they, what that rabbi says is what they... Herod's told by the, by the leaders, and it, you know, it kind of makes it sound like these guys had to really talk about where this, where this was happening. Uh, there, there had to have been somebody who knew the Messiah, because he's always been... The, the scriptures have always been followed on who the Messiah is and where he's born. But he goes and says, where's the Messiah going to be born? Where's the Christ, the, the anointed one? Where is he going to be born? Herod asked where he's going to be, and then Herod got, Herod got, the, Herod got his scribes and, and the, the Jewish wise men, basically, and said, where is he going to be born? And they said, in Bethlehem. And they gave him the verse on why he's going to be born in Bethlehem. And then verse 7, And Herod, when he had called, privately called the wise men, inquired of them diligently what time the star appeared. Here he is. He's showing his, his evil side is already in, in the works. How long has this star been? You know, if this star appeared when he was born, how long have you seen it? Now, we don't know how long it was, was seen by them, but because Herod killed every child under two years of, old, of age, they probably told him that the star appeared two years before. And that would make sense because they had just made a journey that would have taken several months. And you didn't just get up and see a star that morning and then get up. You know, Number one, you saw this phenomenal star in the sky. You had to go figure out why it was there. That would have taken them a couple months. Then once they see the star, then they've got to go, okay, we've got a king to go visit. Let's start planning this. What are we going to bring him? What gifts are we going to bring him? Let's gather the gifts. Let's get, you know, let's get everything together. It wasn't like you saw the star and you, you started that night or the next morning to go there. They would have taken several months, if not a full year, preparing for this journey. And then they've got a several-month journey because they would not have taken the short route. They would not have taken the short route right across the desert. That just would not, is not, would not have been effective. They would have followed the Euphrates all the way up north come back down. They would have followed the same route that Abraham followed to come to the Promised Land. They would have gone up to Ur of Chaldees and then came down. Yeah, the Fertile, fertile Crescent. They would have gone all the way to the western part of that and then come down where the land, where the desert wasn't near as wild and, and hot. They would have taken a, a trip. They would have taken at least three months, if not six months. So it's taken them pretty close to two years from the time they see the star to the time they finally get to Jerusalem. So Herod, Herod says, you know, tell me when you see this. And then he said in verse 8, and he sent them to Bethlehem and said, go and search diligently for the young child. And this is what Amy brought out is they're calling him a young child. When they, when they finally get to them, it's going to use the word for child, not for infant or baby in the, in the Greek. So he is probably about two years old when, when they finally see him and they go to a house which we'll see that as well. So all, the, all of our manger scenes that we see when we celebrate Christmas are all a bunch of baloney. <laughs> he's, not, he's not in the manger when the wise men come there. He's not, he's not in the stable or probably actually the tower of the sheep, sheepfold of, of uh, Rachel is where he probably was born. And they get 
he sends, when you find this young child, bring me word again that I may come and worship him. Now, if you know Herod's, we've talked about how bad Herod is. This becomes very obvious that Herod has no plans to worship him. But he is a politician. He probably had the oily voice and the charisma to try to fool these magi. Now, I really want to worship him. When you find him, you let me know where he's at because I'm too busy to go out and find him. So when you find him, you let me know where he's at so I can come and worship him as well. And uh, it says in verse 9, When they had heard the king, they departed, and lo, the star which they saw in the east went before them till it came and stood over where the young child was. And when they saw the star, they rejoiced with exceeding great joy. And this is one of the things they come out. There's their star they're supposed to be following. And as I said, I believe they took their eyes off the star when they got close to Jerusalem because they recognized here's the capital. The king, is, the king has got to be born in the capital. The star took us to the capital. And they just said, okay, you know, we're here. We're just going to, instead of following the star and realizing the star had gone beyond, they go, let's stop here. And then when they came back out, there's their star. And they were excited. There's the star. We... we that we, we did go to the wrong place. They were inside, so they may not, have, may not have seen it from where they were at, and it may have disappeared. They may have gone off. It could have been a natural occurrence in the star for the first part of it. I think it was probably an angel because you, the stars don't lead very well. I believe it was an angel, an angel shining forth that led them because stars don't lead very well. You can, you can get a general direction from a star, but you can't, you're not going to find a specific place. People argue all the time about what, what did they see, what did they follow. A lot of people want to say it was conjunction of the planets that created a star. But again, but again, and that might very well be true to lead them from Persia to Israel, but that's not going to lead them to over the house. It could lead them, you know, because they're following this light and you just follow the light, you follow the light, but once you get to Jerusalem, might as well kept going to going to the Mediterranean at that point because the light would, you know, if it was stars, it would have continued out east. Uh, out west, rather. So because it was so far up, it, it wouldn't have led you to a house. Well, that would have been protocol as well. So, I mean, there could have been a good reason to go to Bethlehem because that would be protocol. It would have been protocol. You know, we just, we've just come in. We've got a small army with us. We better check in with the king and let him know that we're here in, in peace. And that would, be in a, that would have been protocol and still is to, the, to this day. If you send a large contingency to a country from another country, you better be talking to their leaders and telling them why uh, why am I sending in this you know company of army into your into your place you know you want to tell them why so there there I never thought about that but that could be a very legitimate reason why they went to Bethlehem uh, to Judah uh, Jerusalem uh, because that was where the king was it would have been protocol to check in we just come in with a small army we know you're worried about us we're here to worship the king so Yeah, we're going to get there, yeah. Yeah, we're... All right, verse 11, we'll read a couple more verses. And when they were coming to the house, they saw the young child with Mary his mother and fell down and worshipped before him. And when they had opened up their treasure, they presented him with gifts, gold and frankincense and myrrh. And being warned of God in a dream that they should not return to Herod, they departed to their own country another way. So we're going to look at this. They came to the house, and this is... This is a couple of points that people never realize because it says right there they came to a house. They didn't come to the inn. They didn't come to a stable. They didn't come to a 
a manger. They found him and they found a young child. And again, in Greek, this is a word that's used for a toddler to a young school-age child. This is not the word used for an infant or a baby. Uh, so they found a child with Mary, and it says they fell down and worshipped him. Yeah, in this case, they're falling down not out of being overwhelmed. They, they are choosing to fall down because they're in front of, they're in front of the king that they know is, is the king. And they give him all the honor that any king deserves and fell down you know, to their knees at, at the very least. And again, in the, in the Middle East and in Asia even to this day, when you're in front of somebody, the lower you bow, the more important they are. Here are the kingmakers in front of the king of the universe, and they know that this king is very, very special. I believe they probably laid prostrate on the ground because that's as low as you could get in front of somebody who deserves all honor. And you know, otherwise, you just kind of bow, and you, you know, your, your, your really respectful bow is to bow it to 90%. If you're kind of just bowing out of, you know, hey, it's, you know, this guy is just slightly more than me, it's just kind of a nod of the head. It's not even really a bow. And these guys are knowing they came a long ways to see this king. I believe that they fell completely prostrate in front of this king. And here's Mary sitting with Jesus, looking at these very important people. Can you imagine? You're sitting in your home, and this huge entourage comes to your door. Yeah. What would you be thinking? What's going on? Yeah. Oh! We know it was a big deal for Herod to have this group come in. You know, and now you've got this little town. They might have outnumbered the town because Bethlehem wasn't a big town. Herod's, uh, uh, excuse me, Bethlehem is not a big town. So it's, they, they may have outnumbered the town people and they probably left their, the bulk of their people outside the town as they come in with just enough guards to, to feel safe. And if, you know, there's 10 or 20 of them. We don't know how many. We know there's probably more than three. And they come to her house, royal garments, a, a royal guard, <laughs> probably didn't leave their camels or whatever they crossed the desert with, you know. So they're coming through Bethlehem, drawing a huge crowd. You know there's a huge crowd being drawn. And everybody's watching. Where are, they, where are these guys going? Number one, the first question is, what are they here for? <laughs> then the next question is, whose house are they going to? And they're going to go to Mary. And remember, we talked last week about Mary is not the respectable person in this community. She's had a child out of wedlock as far as these people are concerned. She committed adultery, and Joseph accepted her, so he probably was part of this whole thing. And whose house do they go to? the most least respected per woman in town and her husband who's kind of looked down on. And they go to her house. These guys dressed in royal garments with a great entourage go to the least respected woman in town at the moment. And that's got to draw a bunch of, what's going on? Why is this happening? Who are these people? Who is this Mary? And you might have begun to start to maybe believe her story. You know, she said this was God's child. Uh, maybe. <laughs> maybe she was telling the truth. 
Now in Bethlehem, she wasn't as well known as she would have been in Nazareth, but, but there's still that whole story's going along. It's a small town. They know. They know. Yeah. <laughs> they know. And they bring him gold, frankincense, and myrrh. Now the gold is going to become very valuable because we're going to learn that Joseph is told to leave Israel and go to Jerusalem, so they're going to need money. Frankincense and myrrh are used in burial spices. Uh, myrrh is used in burial spices, and frankincense used in worship. If you remember in Leviticus, the the uh, showbread is sprinkled with frankincense. The the frankincense is a major component of the um, anointing oil and of the of the uh, oil to burn in the in the temple. So frankincense is part of the worship of the king of the universe, the God. And then myrrh. Most people believe that myrrh was given to him as a sign of his impending death and resurrection to come. To come, And gold is just going to allow Mary and Joseph to live while they're in Egypt. And it probably was a fairly good sum of gold. I don't think they just handed him a gold, single gold piece. Here, have some gold, king. I believe they, bought, they brought a gift that was worth bringing to a king. Now, what does that mean? I believe that means that they had a very large stash because you're going to go to a king, you're going to honor a king. Number one, they expected to find him in the royal house and you're not going to just bring a small amount of gold to the king who's in charge of a whole country because that's not going to be an impressive gift. Yeah, I mean, that's probably not a king's ransom or anything, but it had to have been enough. enough. Had to have been enough to be able to say a very nice chest full of gold at the very least. So here they are, they're given their gift. Then as they're getting ready to leave, they're warned. Don't go back to Herod. Now I have a feeling they probably suspected Herod you know, had ulterior motives from the very beginning when he's starting to ask them about, well, when did you see the star? How old is this? How old will this child be? And then he's trying to say, I'm going to go worship them. I'm sure that as much as Herod knew about them, they probably had done their homework on on the rulers of that area to know who's, because they're going to know they're going to go to one, they're, they're expecting to go to one of the kings in the first place. So they're going to read up about these kings. They're going to know how paranoid Herod is. They're going to know how vicious he is. They're going to know about, you know, the other governors in that area, Pilate and all the other ones, because these guys are very smart guys. These are kingmakers. They want to know who am I dealing with? They're going to prep themselves so that they, this is what you say, this is how you say it, this is how free you can be, this is how, they're going to try to be very cautious on what they know. They're going to be prepared. Verse 13, and when they were departed, behold, the angel of the Lord, excuse me, an angel of the Lord appeared to Joseph in a dream saying, arise and take the young child and his mother and flee into Egypt and be you there until I bring you word for Herod will seek the young child to destroy him. When he arose, he took the young child and his mother by night and departed into, into Egypt and was there until the death of Herod, that it might be fulfilled, which was spoken of the Lord by the prophet out of Egypt, I shall call my son. All right, so here we have another prophecy being fulfilled. And again, remember, the target audience of Matthew is the Jews. He is constantly through the whole gospel going to say that this prophet, that this prophecy could be fulfilled, that this prophecy could be fulfilled, that this prophecy, he's wanting to make sure he says, this is the Messiah, here's the verse, <laughs> here's the verse that says it's him. 
And it says, and when, they, when the wise men were departed, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared unto Joseph. He's still the head of the household in a dream. And he says, arise and, ch- and take the young child. Again, we have this young child, not baby. And I love this, this phrase that Mark puts in. And his mother. Okay? He doesn't say your child. He's very clear in each of these points to say that it's the child and his mother. Continually hammering away at the fact that this is a virgin birth. He had nothing to do with this child. And... Uh, keeps going over and over that uh, whole that whole statement and remember in in chapter one at the end of chapter one it said to help us understand again that it was a virgin he said that joseph did not have intercourse with mary until after jesus was born and then they consummated their marriage so that that's a good verse to use when somebody tries to tell you that mary was a virgin for her entire lifetime never you know, no, they had sex, they had children. And we know that from other verses, that they had children. And they were to flee to Egypt. The fleeing to Egypt is a picture of what Israel did way back in Joseph's time. They fled to Egypt for protection from the famine. Remember that there was a famine in the land, and Joseph had been sold into Egypt. He helped the... Pharaoh determined the interpretation of his dream to save, save 20% of all the produce for, for seven years and then the seven years of bad uh, famine were going to come and during the second year of that famine Joseph's family came down there and, and he goes well move dad down here because there's still five more years of this it's going to get worse than it is right now and they fled basically to Egypt and this is they were a picture of Jesus going to Egypt and Egypt is going to represent bondage and sin in the world. That's what Egypt represents in the scriptures when you read it, and it's not talking about the literal country, but in its symbology, it represents sin, the world, and bondage. And so in Hebrews, they'll tell us that we need to stay out, you know, be removed from Egypt, and they're using it in its negative symbolic sense. And so Jesus is sent into the world as a physical baby now, not just a coming from heaven into the world. Now as a young child, he's being taken out of Jerusalem area, the Israel, the promised land, the, the place of paradise as far as the Jews are concerned of, going into the world, Egypt. So we're continuing the picture. The picture is being stayed, stayed in there, and he's going to be rescued out of Egypt later on when, he, when they come back to Bethlehem. So we see all of this going on, and the reason that he's told to flee is Herod's going to come and try to destroy him. Herod, in this particular picture, is basically an antichrist trying to destroy the Messiah. And the Jews have been in trouble all through their history. Before Jesus was born, Satan was trying to destroy them so the Messiah would not be born because the promise to Abraham was, from your seed all the nations will be born, uh, will be blessed. So Satan knew that from Israel, the Messiah had to come. So he's been trying for millennia before Jesus was born to destroy the Jewish people. 
Because if he could destroy the Jewish people, then God would have lied and the Messiah couldn't be born. Since Jesus has been born, he has been out to destroy the Jews because he knows that at the end days, that everything is about Jerusalem again. So again, he's got the same purpose. Try to kill, try to destroy the Jews to keep, make God a liar that there will not be a Jewish people for the Messiah to come back and rescue and set up a kingdom for. Over the years, Satan has been very desperately trying to do it through uh, Nebuchadnezzar, through, through the uh, Ptolemaic period where battle went back and forth over, over Egypt, uh, between Egypt and, and Babylon, and poor, poor Israel happened to be right in between them as they would battle back and forth and the armies would march through and there was all these death and everything of their people uh, through the Roman Empire that tried to destroy them on multiple occasions. We see Hitler trying to destroy them. We see all these groups trying to destroy Israel because Satan is trying very hard to destroy them. Well, all the, all the Middle East is trying to destroy them right now, motivated, motivated by Satan. You know, not directly, but that's who's behind the, the whole thing, trying to destroy Israel. Because if Israel is destroyed, God's plan cannot come to fruition. Because Satan will prove that God didn't know the future. So he's trying desperately, and God says, no, I'm going to keep my people. They will always be there. So, verse 14, And he arose, and he took the young child and his mother by night, and departed into Egypt. Now, again, remember, it is dangerous to travel by yourself, number one. And they never traveled by night, even though that's the best time to travel in the desert. They did not run caravans at night because you ran by caravan. <laughs> you had so many people that you really weren't afraid of getting, getting robbed because you just had a lot of people. And they're leaving in the middle of the night, just him, Mary, Jesus, and a whole bunch of gold. And frankincense and myrrh, which they could have sold, but they, by the way it sounds, you didn't have that much time. The, the Magi left, they said, get out. Now, they might have had a little cart or some kind, you know, something that they traveled with. We talked about that last year during Christmas time. How, you know, how, did, how did Joseph and Mary travel to, to Bethlehem? Probably not on a donkey because a donkey was a, was a royal beast in that day. Or at least a very wealthy person's be, uh, mode of travel. Now, they had gold. They might have, in this trip, they might have been able to actually afford to buy something worth traveling with. But none of the gospels say anything about that trip to Egypt. No, just that he went. It would have been a dangerous trip, but in this particular case, he had the money. He probably probably went in more style than they came down in, because there was they now have some money to buy some stuff, uh, provided he was told early enough to be able to buy something to travel with. But they probably joined a caravan as soon as possible. Once they left Bethlehem. Yeah, it's probably not unlike our covered wagons during the yeah. transition. Yep. Yeah. Yep. They traveled in groups. Verse 15, and there was, and, and, they, and was there in, in Egypt until the death of Herod, that it might be fulfilled, which was spoken by the Lord, by the prophet, saying, Out of Egypt I have called my son. And this is Hosea 11, verse 1, that says, that he's called, that his son, that he would be called out of Egypt. We're going to see this over and over that, that uh, Matthew quotes scriptures, does this all the time. Verse 16, 
And when Her and Herod, when he saw that he was mocked of the wise men, was exceedingly wroth, and sent forth and slew all the children that were in Bethlehem and all the coast thereof from two years old and under, according to the time which he had diligently inquired of the wise men. Then was fulfilled which was prophesied by Jeremiah the prophet, saying, In Ramah was there a voice heard, lamentation and weeping and great mourning, Rachel weeping for her children and would not be comforted because they were not. When Herod saw that he was mocked, King James makes it a little strong. It really is that he was deceived, you know, that they tricked him. Outwitted. Yeah, the, 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 the King James says mocked. That's a little on the harsh side. Now, he may have considered that he had been mocked. He's the great Herod. Nobody would defy him. So he might have considered himself mocked. The word is more of tricked or deceived, which could be mocking if you're of that mindset. He got angry. He was hoping to just be able to take the soldiers down and kill the one child. And now he's got a problem. There's a king born in Bethlehem. That's about two years old. He's still defenseless. There's not, he knows there's no royal army in King in, in, uh, in Bethlehem. He knows there's no force that can withstand him. He was looking forward to just riding the 17 miles, going out on a little trip, killing a, ba you know, killing a baby, and going home. Now he has a problem. There's a king in Bethlehem. Now he doesn't recognize him as king, but the wise men recognized him as king. And if they've just gone and talked to them, now these people in Bethlehem know that there's a king in Bethlehem. Because he knows they're not going to be silent. He's, he knows they're a large group. They're going to draw a crowd. They're going to, they're going to be wondering, why are you here? <laughs> in his anger, he sends the army in to kill every child of two years and under in Bethlehem. And note, and all the coast thereof. So how far that went? He talks about coast. So he either went to the Dead Sea, which is still a, a couple hundred miles, where he went all the way to the Mediterranean. Either way, he's gone a long ways to kill, make sure he kills this child. Which is why the, Joseph was told, take the child to Egypt. At least in Egypt, he has no power. He has no authority in Egypt. And so we see the monstrosity, the immensity of this murder that's taking place of all these kids. This would have been news. This would have been remembered. When Jesus came back, he was known as a Nazarene, not as, not a, not as a Bethlehemite. Because everybody would have questioned, well, aren't you about the age that all those children was killed? So he got known as a Nazarene, not as a... Bethlehemite. It says here that it was fulfilled what Jeremiah said, and this would be Jeremiah 31:15. In Ramoth was, a, was there a voice heard, a lamentation, a weeping, a great mourning, Rachel weeping for her children, and would not be comforted because they were not. They had been killed. Why do they pick Rachel? Because Rachel is buried just outside of Bethlehem. When, when she died, Jacob buried his beloved wife in Bethlehem. He did not take her to the family sepulcher where Abraham and Sarah and Isaac and Rebekah are buried. He buried her in just outside of Bethlehem. And we've talked about that at various times that I kind of believe that when we read about 
Leah and, and Rachel. Leah was the pretty one. Leah was the one that Jacob fell in love with. But you look at her attitude in most cases and the things she says and the things she does, and you compare her to Leah, who seemed to be a more godly woman. And I think he actually, over time, fell in love with Leah. And Rachel's beauty didn't hold up in his eyes as much as the kindness and the godliness of, of Leah. And this is one thing I especially tell young people. Well, you need to look at a woman beyond just external beauty. Because many beautiful girls have terrible personalities. Not all, but many have terrible personalities. And, and you need to be careful because that personality is what's beautiful in the long run. That personality is going to be what's beautiful when they're, when they're 70 years old and still have a good person, you know, have that personality and that godliness when the beautiful woman with their vile personality has lost their beauty and now are just very hard to deal with. Huh? Bitter old woman who's lost her beauty. And Rachel is buried in this area. This is her, they speak of this as being her area. Bethlehem was her, you know, she, there's a tower outside of Bethlehem where the sheepfold is and it's called the Tower of Rachel. And uh, it is many believe that that's actually where Jesus was born in that tower because there was no room in the town. So, and you guys had mentioned that many people believe that the home they went to was a, was part of the home of, of uh, their family because both of them are of that line, of the royal line, so Bethlehem would have been home. There would have been family there to go see. And family at that day and age would help you out. Help you out. And if you didn't help your family, there, there was something wrong with you. If you could not help your family, you were, uh, you were a terrible person. And so they would have been most likely stay, staying at, that, uh, at a family's place. And Herod died at 1 BC. So sometime after 1 BC, they would have been able to come back. So this is why we think that he was born somewhere around 3 BC or maybe as early as 5 BC. Um, but it says in verse 19, but when Herod was dead, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared in a dream to Joseph in Egypt, saying, Arise, and take the young child, and again his mother, and go into the land of Israel, for they are dead which sought the young child's life. And he arose and took the young child and his mother and came into the land of Israel. But, but when he heard that Archelaus did reign in Judea in the room of his father Herod, he was afraid to go thither, Notwithstanding being warned of God in a dream, he turned aside into parts of Galilee. And he came and dwelt in the city called Nazareth, that it might be fulfilled, which was spoken by the prophet, that he shall be called a Nazarene. So here we have, they come back into the land. Herod's dead. They're told to go back. And they start coming back, and they realize one of Herod's sons is in charge. <laughs> All right? And he does not trust this this son, this is Archelaus. Archelaus ruled from 4 BC to 16 AD. So this gives you that time frame of when they've had to come. Herod is dead, so we can't go all the way back to 4 BC. But he would have been alive when his father gave the command to kill all the children. And Joseph's a little bit afraid that he may be uh, 
little bit vindictive and, and have the same problems that his father does. So he's not going to go to Bethlehem. And this it says, in, he moved to go toward Galilee. And he came and he dwelt in the city called Nazareth, that it might be fulfilled that by the prophets that he shall be called a Nazarene. Now, when you read Nazarene, do not get confused because there's a, a vow of a Nazarite that's in the scriptures as well. That is not the same thing as being from Nazareth and being a Nazarene. So many people get those things confused. A Nazarite took a vow to honor God. They wouldn't shave their, they wouldn't cut their head. They wouldn't shave their beard. They didn't eat, they didn't drink any alcohol. They didn't touch any dead bodies. They, they couldn't eat or touch a grape or a raisin or anything that could be made into wine, wine from there. Those were Nazarites. They were Nazarites for a period of time, and when they finished their period of time as a Nazarite, they would go to the tabernacle or temple, shave off all their hair, their head and their hair on their head, and offer a sacrifice at the completion of their vow. Uh, great, great people who were known as Nazarites. The most well-known one, Samson, and he violated all his Nazarite vows before before he died, and had and had his hair shaved for him. And then he gave the sacrifice of his own life to destroy all the people in the Temple of Dagon when he pulled down the tower. And John the Baptist appears to be a Nazarite, though it's not specifically stated that he was. Yeah, there's nothing specifically. Most people believe that he was, but there's nothing that says he was. He was dedicated from his birth. His mother was told not to touch the wine. But there was no indication that he was mandatory to it. And uh, we believe that Paul, when he was on his missionary trip on his way back to Jerusalem, had taken a vow that was most likely the Nazarite vow because he had to go to the temple and, and be purified and that probably meant cleansing and offer the sacrifice. There could have been other vows that it was, but most, many scholars believe that he was, had taken a Nazarite vow before he came back. So... They end up in Nazareth. And this is going to be the thing that confuses the population when Jesus comes forth to be the Messiah and show himself. Because they know, those that are trained, they know that he's supposed to be a Bethlehemite. And he's going to come in being called a Nazarene. And they're going to go, well, the Messiah is supposed to be born in Bethlehem. And if they had just taken a little bit of time to question him, they would have found out that he was born in Bethlehem. But you've also got to remember one other thing at his age that he would have been. They would have looked at him and said, well, he can't be from Bethlehem. All the children died 30, 30 and 32 years ago that lived and were born in Bethlehem. So they're going to go, well, he can't be, he can't be from Bethlehem. He's, his age, they died. And they wouldn't have recognized God's hand in his salvation. God's hand has been in his salvation from the very early time. And God's hand is in any of his children's life. And he keeps us. And usually when we look back over our life, we start seeing God's hand in our life. The little places where he's worked and delivered and kept us, kept us alive and put us in just the right situation to right, meet the right people, to, to be pushed in the right direction. And we start realizing when we look at it and say, wow, look what God did. I look at what God did for me when I was young and I started going to church when nobody else in my family went to church. You know, I can remember going to church as young as five years old. Going to church. 
I have no idea what church I was going to. I just went to the nearest church that I could get to. I can remember going on the church bus and going to church, finally getting saved at age 10. But I'd already been going to church for five years. Why? Because God put it in my heart to go find him. Because there was nothing in my family that said go to church. Nobody in my family cared whether I went to church or not. I had to get up on my own. I had to go to get dressed. I had to go to church on my own. Nobody was going to wake me up. Nobody was going to make sure I went to church. But God put it in my heart to go to church. And I don't remember much of the early churches. I remember the day I got saved and when I heard that gospel message and knew that I needed God. And Jesus has the Father's hand of protection on him when he was too young to be protected. Messages to his family, go. The financial provision by the wise men coming in just before he had to go. And the fulfillment, how God fulfilled each of these prophecies. It's an amazing thing to look at how God, what God did and how he did it. But you know, when we really look at our life, it's no less amazing what he does for us. When we really step back and say, God, how have you moved? How have you manipulated my life to get me where I am? And you start looking at it and go, wow. Some people have all kinds of stories about how they should have been dead before they finally came to God. Okay? My dad, had, my dad says he remembers at least seven occasions where he should have been dead but didn't die. So many people have that testimony, especially if they got saved older, especially if they got saved when they were older, that they see these points when I really should have died at this point in my life. But God... But I love that term that I just said, but God. God has a plan for us. He has an event for us. And he's going to make sure that we're moved into the right direction to, for it to happen. All right, let's close in prayer. Lord, we just thank you for this day. We thank you for how much you love us. Lord, we thank you for the story of your birth that we just looked at and your protection over that time and how the Father protected you even before you could make decisions, and how you were worshipped even from a young child. And we just thank you and ask you to be with us as we go about our business. In Jesus' name, amen.